Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of April, St. Evans will be donating to Welcome to Chinatown, a grassroots initiative that is supporting and amplifying community voices to preserve one of New York City's most vibrant neighborhoods. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women of color run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop vintage, 
do good and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that is experiencing one of those weird times when all machines and electronic devices turn against you. I know some of you have experience with this. I know Gabriella, if you're listening, you have experience with this, but like, let's see this week, I somehow did something to the lawnmower. My external hard drive isn't working again. Something weird going on with our oven. Uh, even my Apple watch was being weird. Anyway, all the devices hate me right now. What a time to be alive. And I'm your host, Amanda. Welcome to episode 72, the final episode of Capitalism Month. Today's episode is extra special. I mean, I think all the episodes are extra special, but maybe this one's extra, extra special. This week over at the blog, that's clotheshorse.world, the blog team has been sharing personal essays about our experiences with creativity and capitalism. We've been releasing one each day, so when this episode comes out, the essays from Carrie, Haley, and Meg will be available on the blog. My piece will be arriving on Thursday. In this episode, you'll hear two conversations about our essays. First, you'll hear from Carrie and Haley, and then from Meg and me. And after that, I'll discuss our final pillar of capitalism, which is incentive. First, I am required by the gods and laws and policies and procedures of podcasting to remind you, if you're interested in joining the group of the coolest people everywhere by supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore vision. Thank you to all of you who already support me, whether it's with money or by recommending the podcast to others, by sharing our content on Instagram or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, thank you to all of you who are still listening. 72 episodes in. <laughs> I also just want to remind you that I want to hear your experiences with work. I only have one message so far 
And Labor Month is next week. So stop snoozing and get on the horn. <laughs> you can call the Close Horse Hotline and that number is 717-925-7417. Or you can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or computer. And you can send that to amanda at closehorse.world. Or just go super old-fashioned and write me an email. I know we haven't even started Labor Month yet, but I'm telling you this now. June will be Personal Style Month here in the Close Horse world. So we want your stories about your own journey to finding your personal style, whatever that means for you. Because the blog process has a longer lead time, it's important that you reach out ASAP with your idea. You can email submissions at closehorse.world doesn't have to be a fully fleshed out piece, just a couple sentences sort of explaining your idea. And we need that by May 9th. So don't procrastinate. You know the longer you procrastinate, the longer you procrastinate. It's just a fact of life. So maybe you want to pause this right now and send off your idea to the team. But I, I can't wait to hear what all of you have to say about your personal style and all of the adventures and misadventures you've had to getting there. So please, please reach out. Throughout this month, we've been exploring the pillars of capitalism, private property, supply and demand, competition, freedom, and later in this episode, incentive. Normally, my exploration of a pillar would come first in the episode, but actually incentive is going to come last today I'm really mixing things up around here, but it makes sense after my conversation with Meg. You'll see it when we get there and you'll be like, yeah, yeah, that was a good transition. So that's coming at the end. Those of us who have been raised in a capitalist system are trained to think of the free market economy as an opportunity generator. Anyone who has an idea or a creative talent is encouraged to think about how they might capitalize on these things. Even as consumers, we think of ourselves as co-creators of the jobs and products that capitalism produces. How often have you made a purchase and thought to yourself, well, at least I'm helping the economy? I know I've thought that. It's our patriotic duty, right? We create this economy by spending our money. So creativity and capitalism are clearly entwined. The pillars of capitalism are intended to support creativity in an entrepreneurial sense, and in some ways they do. But when the team at Closehorse.world started diving into this theme, we realized how these forces, creativity and capitalism, are very much at odds within the context of our own lives. In essence, we've all worked or participated in creative fields and have realized that a capitalistic mindset can be really detrimental to our creativity. I would also just say, how do you put a price on the output of someone's creativity? I mean, when you say that out loud, you see that fundamental flaw in the commodification of creativity under capitalism. I hope that you'll go to the blog and you'll read all of our essays because Carrie, Meg, Haley, and I dig into the personal nuances of these themes. Carrie suggested that we record these conversations about our essays, and I'm so glad that she did because I really enjoyed the direction these conversations took. So let's get started with Carrie and Haley. I'm 
not going to summarize their essays for you. This is not Sparks Notes. I am not a Cliffs Notes. And anyway, I think it's going to be far more impactful and interesting to you if you hit pause right now and go read them over at closehorse.world and then come back because we'll be here waiting for you. All right, let's jump right in. Hello, this is Haley. You all have heard me on the podcast before. I am the design systems lead at uh, closehorse.world. So I work on the blog as a graphic designer. Um, And then I guess, Carrie, if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm the executive editor of the blog closehorse.world. And I've called in on the pod a few times. And I'm excited to be chatting with Haley today. So this week, uh, the closehorse.world team is publishing personal essays on the blog on the theme of creativity and capitalism. And Haley, the minute I read your essay, I knew we had to have a follow-up conversation. Yeah, and I didn't get to read your essay till much later in the process, but I've always seen us as pretty similar people. So I was going to be very curious to read your essay. And then when I finally read it, there was a lot of stuff in it that I felt was very relatable. We both have careers in creative sectors. You're a graphic designer. I actually started my career briefly as a graphic designer, um, and I'm now a book editor. And essentially, we've been earning money in exchange for our creativity. And I think we both feel personally that capitalism has inherent demands that can really exhaust your creativity. They're just, they're pressures like deadlines, replicating past successes, getting client and customer approval, the list really goes on. For sure. And it seems like we've each come to a conclusion that we have to put some boundaries around our work to protect our creativity. But we're coming at this from two very different places. You're a few years into your career and I'm a few decades into mine. And honestly, I think I have a lot to learn from you. Um, Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I am so early and I actually feel like I have a lot to learn from you. Reading your essay was really interesting to me because your essay is a lot of how I almost saw my future in my career. Uh, Probably (laughs) like when I started school, like I had planned on working and working and working and being at the office till crazy hours of the night. Like that was the career I had planned for for myself. Um, But I think it was my freshman or sophomore year, one of my mentors actually, uh, and she was in her 40s, she was young, she had a heart attack and she almost died. And her doctor told her it was from the stress of her work. And that really freaked me out. Um, And so I like completely changed how I saw myself because I really admired her. And like, I talked to her after and she was like, I almost lost my life for something so stupid. Um, and she's like, and I, I, I miss all this time with my family and like, I don't know, she like really reprioritized her life. And I found myself realizing that I wanted to reprioritize mine because I didn't want to like find myself working all these hours in my career and all, like wake up one day and realize like I had missed stuff, I guess. Um, yeah. And, wow. yeah. and so that her, her influence on me was just so... Yeah, um, I I realized that we were very similar, and I didn't want that for myself. <laughs> I guess. No, that's that's great that you ha- encountered someone who let you in like that, 
Um, and wow, that, that really raised my eyebrows um, because I can <laughs> relate to her path as we'll get to. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of explains a lot about what I sense when I read your work um, and my takeaway from your piece, which I highly encourage our listeners to read, is that you do seem to place your creative work on a spectrum and place boundaries around it. So on one end of the spectrum is the cerebral and problem-solving part of your creativity, and you associate that with the kind of back-end work that you do as a user experience designer. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the emotional part of your creativity, which you associate with the more subjective and personal aspects of art making and design. And what you've decided decided is that you're comfortable getting paid for the cerebral part, but not at all comfortable with getting paid for the emotional side of your creativity. And I was wondering if you know why you're protective, so protective of your personal self-expression, and is there an origin story behind this that you're willing to share? Yeah, um, I definitely am really protective of it. And I always have been because, uh, as I kind of mentioned in my essay, I went into graphic design with a way that it is a way to be creative, but kind of within boundaries. Um, and it was that when I was younger, um, for a really long time in my life, um, I tried to kind of conform myself to where I grew up and be like those people and make those people like me. And they all still didn't like me. <laughs> um, yeah. And I kind of, um, this is just a trigger warning for anyone listening for some mental health stuff. Um, definitely skip like the next few seconds, minutes, I don't know. Um, but I actually attempted um, to take my own life. And uh, after years and years of depression and after I survived that attempt, I went ahead and I realized that I didn't even like me and everybody still didn't like me. And so I would, I at least wanted to be a person that I liked and a person I admired and not a person that like nobody else's opinion needed to matter to me anymore. And I feel like a lot of like my emotional creativity kind of draws from that really vulnerable place in the like my feeling space and the kind of my struggles with mental illness, like a lot of that, like gets pulled from that. And that just is like not very appealing to sell or capitalize on because it's so personal and it's like hard to also put that part out there. Um, Cause that part is also just like a much more vulnerable part than like the part that I can be like, I arrived to this by these decisions and so, like, if somebody says, nah, I don't like it, it's kind of like, well, that's fine because, like, whatever. But when it's something that's kind of more that emotional, creative side of myself, that's something that just feels much more personal and deeper. And so it's just it's hard for me to separate myself from my work at that point. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I, I wasn't anticipating that answer. Obviously, I didn't know. And I... Um, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it makes all the sense in the world that you would have your own such clear criteria for yourself in terms of what you're willing to express and share and how you're protective of that. And I just, uh, yeah, I just want to say that I'm, I'm really glad that you came to those realizations. I'm sure it was really painful, but also 
set you up to be the person that you are now, you know, where you, I think, probably have a lot more healthy boundaries than people who haven't decided, okay, this is who I want to be. This is what I'm, how, what I'm basing my self-worth on. And I'm not going to go astray seeking validation outside of that. Yeah. I mean, I think like for me, that was just a life-saving thing. Like I would not be here if I did not have that shift of mindset of saying who I am matters to me and it doesn't, it shouldn't matter to anyone else. Um, and like, I can still be successful and be me. Um, I don't have to be someone else to be successful. And I think that's really what I learned in that moment. And then what kind of turned my life around, because uh, if you talk to like teachers who I went to, who like were my teachers when I was younger, they're pretty surprised at who I am today when they meet me. They're like, you talk now and you're like, confident and bold because I was known for being like really shy and quiet and awkward and like weird um, and not really like putting myself out there at all and now I'm kind of like here's my self let me like vomit on you and if you don't like that like you don't have to deal with me <laughs> that's great um, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that's the Haley that we all get to have now yeah me too uh, I love being myself so much more than when I tried to yeah, kind of fit into like that societal expectation of what I was supposed to be. Um, So I feel pretty happy with that as well. Um, Talking kind of back on your piece, um, you kind of talked about and some of the takeaways that is that you tend to get lost in your work and don't really come up from air for air, but you want to break that habit. Um, You talked about having a wake up call with your health, which like I said, I've heard this story before. Um, and I've heard this story from people who work really, really hard and have really high expectations from their work. And I think it's really hard to step outside of that. Um, you talked about having space cleared to think about things you wanted to. Are any of those things something you'd be willing to share in more detail? Yeah. In my essay, I describe a pattern of workaholism that persisted through my mid-30s. Um, it really started in my late 20s. And then my health started to to deteriorate, and I found out that I had endometrial cancer, which is cancer of the uterus. And, you know, I think my family and my boyfriend saw a connection between my overworking and illness much more readily than I did. Um, You know, it's interesting that your mentor's doctor made a direct link between the heart attack that she had and stress, and I've never had that correlation made to me. Um, it's obvious that stress has an effect on the body, but it's not always easy to quantify. And, you know, overworking is not listed among risk factors for cancer, at least not ones I've seen. No, me neither. Um, but it definitely like kind of adds up and makes sense because it, it puts wear on your body that makes your body react. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's like my cells were overworking when I was overworking, essentially, Um, And in a strange spot, too, because the uterus is, uh, you know, sort of like a a seat of creativity, right? Mm -hmm. And mine was in overdrive. So anyway, um, when I, you know, I had radiation treatment, and I had to take a month off for that. And then I had to scale back work for about five months when I had chemo. And all of that was such a huge relief, because at the time, I had become really unhappy with my job. And I felt stuck in it because I felt like I needed to hang on to it to achieve to achieve all these other milestones in adult life 
So specifically earning enough money to support a family. And once I learned that I couldn't have biological children, I honestly felt really relieved. And I realized that it actually wasn't important to me and that the pressure to have kids is a nebulous and external one, at least for me. And it was really like having my ego crack open and I could start to see my real self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that having kids is something society really puts on women and it's really hard to get to the root of whether it's something that's actually important to you or not. Yeah, it is. There, there are just so many different messages informing that this is at least something that you should be considering. And, you know, you have a certain window of time in your life to do that. And um, yeah, I, I just think that it's, it's not something that is really, I, I don't know where there's, there's much guidance in how to ha- find your own path in that. And so I certainly felt clouded on it. And, you know, but even though I had, you know, some relief on that issue, and I recovered fully from cancer, you know, that that kind of self actualization is not an overnight process. And I did find some mental space to envision a life where my own creativity would be a priority for me, you know, instead of raising children. And part of that for me, always meant having time to design and make my own clothes because that was always something I wanted to do among so many other projects. Um, You know, but instead, I just really devoted even more time to my work. You know, I found another job. I slipped into another decade of working double shifts nearly every night. And I just, I hadn't outgrown a need for validation through these external markers of success, which started with working hard to get good grades in school and continued by pursuing promotions and raises and commercial successes at work. So anyway, you know, I I thought it was interesting, speaking of school, that you described yourself in your blog piece as someone who flew under the radar in high school and that no one had any idea your grades were so good until senior year GPA rankings were made public and you were in the top 20 out of like 450 students. So I, I thought I saw your boundary theme continuing here. And I, I wonder, do you find freedom in keeping your talents to yourself? Yeah. And I think, I think that's kind of a funny way of looking at it. I think I saw school as a means to an end. Like I saw school as getting me the grades to get the scholarships to go to the college I wanted. I didn't really see it as something that really mattered as an achievement to me. And I think school honestly is pretty useless in real life. Um, I think people who do really well in school, some of them convert really well over to real life. But I've also seen a lot of people who are great at school really struggle at being an adult. Um, And in high school, a majority of my friends, or maybe not a majority, but a good amount were high school dropouts. And I never considered myself smarter than them. Um, There were ways that I was smarter than them. And in a lot of ways, I also just had the privileges and resources given to me to get through high school with those grades. And meanwhile, watching my friends have to work jobs to help support their families. Like, of course, they can't excel in school the way I did. And these were still such smart and talented people who... Um, actually, in a lot of ways, I think influenced my creativity because they would make music and they would make art and they never really felt the need to even really capitalize on them. They wanted to capitalize, but they were like, I'm going to do this whether I make money or not. And that was just something I always really admired. So I don't I don't think it's so much as me keeping my talents to myself as like that just being something that I don't really like value. 
Um, I think, I think school is, yeah, I don't know, kind of a sham for telling you how smart someone is. So (laughs) it's definitely really narrow criteria, right? And, but you're, you kind of grow up under that criteria for through, you know, informative years until you're, you know, 17 or 18 years old. Um, So I think it's really interesting that you hung out with a lot of different people who didn't subscribe to that and who had different um, outlets. And, you know, I I think it's good because it's also hard not to have a homogenous friend group, particularly if you're one of the top students, you know, everyone just kind of ends up getting shuffled into, Mm -hmm. you know, those sort of advanced placement classes, and then you don't really see any other way. Yeah. Um, And I was in all those advanced placement classes, but I also like, all of my friends went to different high school. And like, I think what really bonded all of us together, because there were quite a few actually high performers in that group, as well as me, um, is that we all really struggled with mental health. And we were able to talk to each other about it really honestly, and get it from each other. So I think, um, and I think we were all incredibly creative, uh, when I think back on it. Um, And so I think, that that bond of being creative and being like, I guess sick and not being well and knowing we weren't well and being in a town that told you you had to be okay. Um, I think that that all just together resulted in us like bonding together and not caring about where we fell in society. Cause I would also say we were pretty diverse in the socioeconomic ladder. Um, and yeah, I, I, I never feel, fit in well with the other like upper middle class kids because they just always seemed so perfect. And I was just a total mess inside. So um, yeah. I think I think I went and I found where where that total mess inside could be. <laughs> yeah, you found your you found your people. Yeah. Um, yeah, we always so yeah, I don't know. We always just joked that we were like kind of the kids who no one really thought about having a future um, because, uh, I mean, a lot of them, like I said, lower socioeconomic. And then like for me, um, I was just, I was so sick mentally that I just like didn't see myself having a future. And so it was just kind of nice to be with a bunch of people who are like, we're here and we're now and we're creative and like, we'll make it or we won't, Um, which is really sad, but it is how it is. No, that sounds, that sounds really hard. And, you know, it's, it's interesting listening to you talk about it, because it just reinforces finding other people who can be empathetic. And, you know, that it's, it was a good influence overall, even though it might not have looked like it at the time. Oh, yeah, no, my parents were horrified. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, My parents were horrified, but those people were the best people I could have ever had in my life. And those people are the reason I'm here today. So, uh, but yes, on the outside, it looked like we hung out in parking lots and did drugs. So, (laughs) yeah, I'll look at like the kids hanging out on the street and I'll keep this in mind. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, reading your piece, um, I really relate to how organized you are. And I actually think it's rare to find another creative who likes order as much as I do. Um, and you maybe like order even more than I do, which I have not found yet in my career. Um, I think there's a stereotype that creatives aren't organized. Um, but that, as you and I know, that is not the case. Um, 
<laughs> and especially since when we work in capitalistic settings, there's this added pressure for creativity to have to work under order instead of chaos. Um, I was just curious, how does being drawn to organizing inform your creative process? And does capitalism kind of influence that at all? Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of annoying assumptions about creativity coming from this very right-brained, intuitive, nonlinear, chaotic place. And I know that I'm able to create things because I can envision a concept and then marshal all of the various resources to make it a tangible reality. So that's obviously an essential skill in the workplace. And it's definitely handy when it comes to creating the products that feed our capitalist machine. Yep. Um, But, you know, I've had about 20 years of training making things within a capitalist setting, and I'm significantly less practiced when it comes to creating in an unstructured way. And I will admit, I get uncomfortable when a project seems kind of aimless. So, you know, I I really admire creative people who are very open and exploratory in their process and, you know, people who can just sort of put something down and react to it and add to it and let that thing unfold. You know, that's, that's something that I have to kind of breathe through. I'm terrible at that too. The exploring and the just the kind of spontaneity that I would describe some creatives have is something I have to make myself practice, which makes it not feel very (laughs) spontaneous. Um, But I don't know. I just, yep, I totally relate to that. Yeah, you know, and I just remind myself that um, even within the most planned out creative process, there is just a lot of uncertainty to navigate. And there are so many points when a project can start out as one thing, and then it can become something else. And I certainly experienced that at work. And I I feel like I need to continue to be really open to that possibility and comfortable with it. And so I'm not as rigid as I sound, but like I said, and like you said, it's something I have to, I have to kind of work on. Um, you know, I noticed in early on in our closed horse meetings that you stated a preference for doing backend design work and that you would rather not do like illustrations. You said something like, I prefer to do stuff that I can set up and then it runs itself. And that sounds like a perfectly optimized kind of creativity, you know, the kind that capitalism favors. And I say this admiringly because although I'm organized, I don't always gravitate towards efficiency. And I I think you may have a talent for spotting the low-hanging fruit. And this is why I really pay attention to you and the kinds of ideas that you bring up for Close Horse, because choosing easy projects and figuring out efficiencies is obviously beneficial to all of us. Yeah, I I really appreciate that because that's, I don't know, it's kind of a weird skill that I think I've always had in certain ways. I think because I've always been pretty like all over the place in my creative initiatives. As you know, I I do graphic design work. I do UX work. I do illustration work. I sew. I paint. I make pottery. Like I just do this huge spectrum of things. And I feel like there's just sometimes where I just want some low-hanging fruit in one of those areas. And so maybe that's where that came from. Um, but I also just get really frustrated by wasting time. Um, the quickest way to like make me angry is to like, make me feel like you've wasted my time. Um, Anybody who has dated me will like vouch to this. Like if you're late, (laughs) um, if you, it's specifically like, I would say like the biggest rage comes out when I date people because I think dating is kind of frivolous and dumb. Um, 
And so, uh, like anybody who I've dated, like it's, it'll be like, they'll like cancel like within like an hour before we're supposed to meet out and I will like, like lose it. Um, and be Mm. really angry and really aggravated. And I just, I really like efficiency. Um, and I, I think also with like my time, I'm very protective of it because like I said, I have all these different things I'm doing all the time. And so like, if I slot something for a certain amount of time in my day, like it's going to be in that time. Um, which also makes me sound very rigid and I am maybe a little bit less rigid than that, but, um, I don't know. I think also that like the biggest project is not always the one that's going to serve you the most. Like sometimes something really little will, um, Mm -hmm. yep. Um, so first of all, you and I would not have made it if we were dating (laughs) because I'm always late and, um, when I was younger would definitely pull the cancel at the last minute thing. I was pretty shitty about that. Um, so yeah, we wouldn't have survived. <laughs> um, also, you know, I am very organized, but I'm not great at quantifying the amount of time something will take or creating a container for a project and then staying in it. You know, like I, I will work beyond clearly the amount of time that I've set aside to put into something. So these are just things that don't, you know, they're just things that, that I have, are, am challenged in. And so it's really good to know that I work with someone who um, is quite the opposite and can model a different way to do things. Yeah, I think it's funny that you mentioned like figuring out how to quantify your work in the time it takes. Uh, that's something we struggle with at my current job. And then at my last job before this, I feel like I got really good at that, like quantifying because the way we operated is that each department had like a certain amount of like time budget they could use us for. So we had to track our time really closely. So I feel like that gave me a really good idea of how long it took me to do things that I've maybe carried into other parts of my life. No, that's good. Um, And I've, you know, I've started to try to employ that a bit with my close horse work and timing how long it takes me to do things and, really trying to wrap my mind around it so that I can be more realistic. Yeah. In your essay, you talk about the first two parts of your career, uh, one of getting started and working your way up and the other almost restarting after a major illness as you've entered this third stage of redefining your career and your relationships between creativity and capitalism specifically. You talk more about having more compassion for yourself. If you don't mind sharing, what does that look like for you? Well, yeah, you know, so I have this established history of looking at my creativity through the lens of my job, and then by extension through the lens of capitalism. So if a book that I worked on sold well, it validated my creativity. And if a project flopped, and there were plenty of flops, I would feel invalidated by that. I took these successes and failures really personally. So I was caught in this wheel of trying to prove myself to myself as well as to everyone else. And it wasn't a terribly forgiving mindset. So, you know, my last job came about because I had built a reputation in my niche in the publishing industry and I generated a bunch of books that were really successful. And so I was tasked with launching a new imprint within a publishing company which is kind of like having a startup within an established company. And um, there was so much, so much at stake for me in that whole enterprise. And the idea of it not succeeding was really mortifying. So I went into work overdrive. And when my imprint folded last year, 
I really had to step back and take a hard look at how I define success and failure. The truth is, I never completely owned my successes, and I don't completely own my failures. I'm just one part of a bigger picture. And I feel like that's something that you, I think you came to that conclusion much earlier in your life than I did. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, I, there was there was trial and error there. But I think, I also think that your industry is just, that's one of the differences. I feel like you probably have a pretty good black and white on whether something succeeded or failed. And with like graphic design or specifically UX design, um, you look at failure as an opportunity to learn how to better serve your user. Um, mm. So you almost need failure to know that you're going in the right direction. I don't know. Like there's, there's just like, there's not that, there's not that just like big failure that comes with like publishing something and it not selling. Um, it's kind of more like, here's a little failure that because this is all in code and this is all kind of more nebulous and not a concrete product necessarily, that we can go and we can change that failure. So that failure doesn't feel like a long-term thing. Gosh, you know, that's so interesting to hear because um, it's, you're absolutely right. I mean, once you print something and put it out onto the market, you can't recall it. So, um, you know, you, you have to sort of live and die by those results and they happen, you know, a book comes out a year after you start it too. So it's sort of like a slow motion path to success or failure with no ability to react and turn around, except maybe for your next project. Um, and, you know, it's, it's so easy to say I'm a success because my book sold well, or I'm a failure because my books you know, didn't sell, but it's, it's a lot harder and it's just much more important to see failure in more subtle forms, you know, like failure to ask for help or failure to set realistic expectations or failure to scale appropriately. And I think I was failing in all those ways, even when I was technically succeeding, you know, when mm. I had some real um, products that really sold well. So, so now for me, success is about trying new things and not attempting to replicate previous successes. And that means putting myself out there and potentially failing, but maybe not in exactly the same ways that I've failed before. And, you know, in the short time I've known you, I've, I've been impressed with all the boundaries that you've put around your work and also your stance about um, not paying your dues, which in creative careers amounts to a long period of working very hard with little compensation. But, you know, admittedly, I've wondered whether you are playing keep away with your creativity a little bit and whether there's more flexibility for you to express all sides of yourself in graphic design. And maybe as your career unfolds, um, have you thought about how you might push yourself out of your comfort zone as a designer? Yeah, I definitely know that I'm keeping playing keep away with my talents. And I think a lot of that is just not feeling valued. Um, I've watched a lot of people who I really respect go through their careers. Um, staying loyal to companies that don't value them at all um, and have no loyalty to them, but then expecting that loyalty back, um, or I guess not back, just expecting loyalty without giving anything. And mm -hmm. this is a pattern I've seen that's especially bad within creative workers. Um, a lot of companies uh, treat creative talent like crap because we can't like prove our profitability 
in the numbers that other teams can. And it's harder to like quantify that our creative stuff is working. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I, I hear you on that. Um, designers are definitely undervalued within all kinds of companies. I, I certainly saw this in the publishing industry. There are some book designers who are stars in their field because of, you know, cover designs. But on the whole, designers are seen as service providers to departments that generate the ideas or the revenue. And it's, it's a stupid, stupidly compartmentalized work culture. And it's, it's just perpetuated by the pressures of capitalism, because if you're in a department that's tasked with generating revenue, then you'll grab all the credit for that that you can um, for successes, because that's how your performance is being judged. But in the meantime, the whole system that contributes to those successes isn't properly seen. Yeah. And like, even kind of adding on that, people act like because they had the idea, it means they deserve all the credit, success, whatever you want to call it. And I don't know, like, in my opinion, big ideas are really easy to have. And it's the execution of those ideas that is actually really hard. Um, And so at a lot of companies, without creative talent, they would have no one to execute these big ideas. uh, And they would not have a product to sell or make money off of. Um, And so, yeah, I kind of, I find myself in this space where uh, if a company isn't going to show their workers respect, and not even just their creative workers, if they're not going to show their cleaning staff respect, like if they are not going to show respect to every single person that works at that company, I don't see why they should get to capitalize on the thing I find most valuable about myself. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in the future, I want to have that flexibility and creativity and having that more in my work, but only on the terms that like I get to set and not terms that are almost forced on me by like incompetent higher ups who can't (laughs) do their jobs. Um, And and that's just like kind of where I'm at is I want to do it on my terms. I don't want to be forced. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I'm, I'm going to really stew on this big ideas are easy to have and executing them is the hard part. I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that before. You know, again, we live in a culture where the big idea is the thing that um, gets a lot of airtime, but I, I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah. It's, I think of that as like, you know, when a new invention comes out and everyone's like, oh, wow. And that person is like, well, I had that idea a few years ago. And I'm like, cool. Right. Like, you did nothing <laughs> with that idea. So this other person is making money because they had that idea and then they executed on it. Um, and so I don't know. That's just kind of where like my thoughts around that are. And there's a just there's a lot of big thinkers in this world who can't actually execute. And I think that also kind of like when you think about me talking about how school I think is kind of dumb and a bad judgment of like smartness. It's the same way I think like having big ideas is kind of like within that realm. Like big ideas are a very academic thing that don't get executed on and get studied and theorized on, but nothing actually really happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I see, yeah, I see ideas kind of like that. Um, and like, yeah, there's plenty of things that I've had ideas on and I haven't executed. And maybe I've even seen somebody else who works with me execute on the idea and it go really well for them. Cool. Like I didn't execute. So like they get, I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I feel like ideas are just given too much 
they, they're given too, too, the, the big idea is given too much weight, I think, in capitalism society. And it's why you see people like Jeff Bezos, who people are like, oh, he deserved to earn that money because he had the idea. And I'm like, yeah, but his workers are who are executing that idea. And so like, yeah. why aren't they getting paid like they're the ones doing the work? <laughs> why is he getting paid like he's doing all that work? Um, and so I think I think I also just see it on like that level as well. Yeah, no, um, I think you're, I think you're onto something. And I also like that you are kind of not precious about ideas, which is another thing I have to say as someone who had to make money by generating ideas. I was very jealous of people's good ideas. I was guarded of mine. It wasn't a fun place to be. I don't want to be there anymore. So I think it's like, okay, you can have the idea, but what idea do you really want to execute? And how are you going to execute it? And who are you going to partner with on that? And are you um, going to work well together and treat each other well and appreciate it? And that's how success is going to happen. It's not going to be based on, I have this amazing idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's that an idea is not a collaborative thing. Um, mm -hmm. You can make an idea in a collaborative thing, um, but both of our careers, I'm, I'm assuming yours is pretty competitive like mine. And I found that playing keep away with ideas has not really served me. But if I share that idea, maybe I don't execute it and maybe somebody else executes it. And that's really cool um, because like I wasn't going to put in the effort. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's yeah. cool to see it live in some form, even if it's maybe not the form I would put it. Ed and things like that. I don't know, but I, I could definitely see like where with like publishing ideas would kind of be this like loftier thing. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, um, but it's sort of like you have, um, I think they're just some ideas that you yourself are maybe meant to pursue and other ideas that you should pass along because someone else might be the better one mm -hmm. to execute. And or they would do a totally different job from you. And maybe there's space for your version and their version. There's just a lot. There's just a lot that I don't think I really felt safe to put out there unless I thought I could execute it myself. You know, I didn't want to give ideas away. Yeah. And um, I like I said, that's it's so interesting that we're talking about this because it's definitely high on my list of ways that I, I want to operate differently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, I think capitalism really makes us think we have to keep these ideas to ourselves. Um, and I think when you look at something maybe more like socialism, it is about sharing those ideas and having that wealth belong to everybody. Um, and I think... I don't know. I, I also just think the latter is more fun. It's more fun to share an idea and build stuff with other people. Um, and that's like, I don't know. But I, I also am not a competitive person. Um, and my career luckily doesn't have to be too competitive because right now we're kind of in an over demand and under supply type of deal. We'll see yeah. later um, how that shapes up when eventually there will be an oversupply and an under demand because that's usually how it cycles yeah. Um, but, but I don't know, I think, and also in school, school makes you competitive. When you go through design school, you put your work on the board and you look at everybody else's right next to yours. And it's an icky feeling. Um, 
And I think I found that I wanted to replace that icky competitive feeling with the warm, fuzzy feeling of community. Yeah, I, I feel that way as well. And I feel like Close Horse has become kind of the, um, the way that we're sort of testing out these ways of being. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have had to face overworking within Close Horse as well. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's so exciting to start something new and, but it's also easy to bite off more than you can chew. Um, and although I can absolutely push myself through the heavy lifting of starting something up, um, I also had to pay attention to, you know, this feeling that I wouldn't be able to sustain the work that I signed up for. So, you know, when yeah. we started and we wanted to publish five posts a week and I was, at, you know, I, to get us going, I edited two weeks worth of content, you know, before the blog went up mm-hmm. and I was already like, nope, this is not, <laughs> this is not going to work. You know, I, <laughs> I, I had to ask if we could scale back to me doing four a week. And when that was too much, I had to ask for help again. Mm-hmm. And now I'm currently editing three posts a week and Meg is handling outfit repeater and anti-brunch. Yep. And believe it or not, it, it really wasn't easy for me to scale back like that. Um, but I think it helped us realize that it was time to bring in more community members to help with the blog. And now we have a small fleet of close horse residents coming on board and I'm really excited about that. Um, yes. I'm also, I'm interested to hear about, you know, how you might adjust your boundaries around your creativity over time, hopefully in healthier work environments. And for now, I hope that you find some room to play and explore with your role at Clothes Horse. Do you have a project in mind at Clothes Horse that represents a different kind of creativity for you? Um, I don't think it necessarily represents a different kind of creativity for me. I think it represents more agency in the creativity. Like I kind of talked about with like companies and the way creatives operate within companies, we don't get to be the strategy. And so I see Close Horse as an opportunity to practice all the strategy like in my work there that I can't necessarily practice in my like day job. Um, and I also see it as like something to practice all the things I've learned and it's made me feel much more confident in my abilities. I've realized that I am actually good at this work, um, and that I can do this work, um, such as like an example of that would be, uh, I do all our Google analytics. I keep an eye on things. Um, that's something that I, I do do a little bit for my day job, but it's not as much my purview. And so it's more kind of using some of those different muscles, uh, that I do use at work, but using them a little bit more intensely on the clothes horse side. Um, no, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad that you're on the clothes horse team to strategize. And that gives me a lot of confidence that we're going to stay focused on some really sensible and impactful goals and that you're going to help, you know, pick out the projects that are going to have some big result maybe for a lighter lift. Yes. Um, And then for me, you know, the new creative territory that I'm pushing into is what we're doing right now. You know, I've always wanted to get beyond print editorial and to try creating audio pieces. And I'm going to be interviewing Amanda and helping her edit an episode of the Close Horse podcast, which I'm nervous about. But um, 
you know, I don't think imposter syndrome ever goes away, but I really feel supported to try new things in our in our little world. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're trying because I I would also guess it's kind of hard to get to try in that space, um, in the space of audio, just because you need the equipment and you maybe need a vague background um, to even just sort of get started writing for it. Um, yeah. And so I'm glad that this can be a space where you can kind of try that out without obviously all that upfront investment. Um, yeah, no, me too. You know, I, I think we've got a good balance of structure and freedom in our close horse world and that these conditions can be really optimal for creativity. And I hope we can hang on to that even if we start to shift towards some kind of income generating model, because I have to be honest, you know, making money from my creativity is still a big part of how I see myself as a worker. And I also love the idea of opening up creative opportunities for others, which Close Horse clearly represents. So I feel like as long as we're able to do that, we've been successful. Our success does not have to be defined by whether we're able to flip this project into a moneymaker. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think it's funny because I went to closehorse.world trying to break my habit of seeing money as success. And I found that really freeing. Um, We'll see how that shifts as we maybe potentially look at generating some income. Um, But I've also just always struggled with like, I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit as my mom calls it. But Mm -hmm. I have never wanted to be a founder of anything because I felt like a lot of times you have to exploit someone to make money. (laughs) Um, And it's nice to be part of like a startup type thing that like puts the community above making a profit. Um, It gives me hope that one day I can make a living without stressing about like the lack of ethics at the company that I work for. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think we're all trying to find a way to do something good and work in an environment where we don't feel exploited or feel like we're exploiting someone else. And there aren't many models for this, but it's definitely a North Star to follow. Yeah, definitely. Well, it was really fun talking to you about all this, Haley. We covered so much and more than I expected. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Wow, wasn't that amazing? Big ideas are easy to have executing them is the hard part. So wise, Haley. I love this. This should be on like posters in offices. (laughs) And it's such a commentary on how we view entrepreneurism and leadership in our capitalist system. Business media is filled with fawning stories about the visionary unicorn CEOs that are changing the world with their big ideas. But we never read about the team that works for them that is actually doing the work to bring those ideas to life. I've mentioned this on the department when we were talking about girl boss culture, and please go listen to those episodes because there has never been a better tie-in to Capitalism Month than our girl boss episodes. And not just because we talk about taking a social justice concept like feminism and turning it into a marketing story, but that is part of it. Anyway, over on the department in the girl boss episodes, I talked a lot about the CEO personality type. The characteristics that are often valued in CEOs are ruthlessness, drive, a growth mindset, just constant generation of big ideas. 
And these qualities are a direct translation of capitalism's priorities, profitability, and competition. This idea of defeating others, of paying your dues, of cutting off your empathy in order to succeed, they all directly contribute to the end product, the goal of capitalism, profit. And I wonder if our worship of these CEO qualities, our aspirations to embody these traits, don't they point directly to the flaws of capitalism, the exploitation of people, the view that workers are disposable, or at least an easily replaceable asset? What if we revisited the traits of a good leader, empathy, collaboration, generosity, How would that change the ways in which companies behave? It's just something I've been thinking about as we finish out Capitalism Month. And even as I said those words, empathy, collaboration, generosity, I saw them being turned into some LinkedIn article that was really just all about capitalism in the first place and weird, uh, ineffective, but highly profitable CEO training modules. (laughs) But the true meaning of those words, embodying those words, that's the kind of leader that could change the way we look at business. I have so many things to say about Haley and Carrie's conversation, but I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the way work has affected your mental health? I definitely want to do a segment about that next month, so I would love to hear from you. Do you ever feel as if you need to protect the emotional side of your creativity? Like, Can that part of you ever truly be for sale? These are all great things for us to talk about in Labor Month, so I'll be elaborating on them a lot more then, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. I'm worried, I'm already worried, that this episode is starting to get long, so let's just jump into my conversation with Meg. I'm not going to summarize Meg's essay. Once again, please hit pause and go read it. But if you listen to this episode the day it comes out, You won't be able to see my essay yet, so I'll just tell you a little bit about it so our conversation makes more sense. I wrote about how I'd always dreamed of being a writer, but it just wasn't an option for me because I didn't have the financial safety net to follow my dreams. I talk about just how broke I was when Dylan was small. I share the time a cup of coffee almost ruined my life and how that drove me, that moment, that cup of coffee drove me to work harder and harder in an industry that I did not love, that I was very concerned about the ramifications of what we were doing, but I did it just to care for my family. And I'll talk about so much more. What happened when I lost my job after years and years of doing this thing just to support my family and have that sense of security, what that felt like and how that led to Close Horse. So please read that tomorrow. All right. Let's just get into this conversation. (music) 
Meg, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? I mean, I know that everybody already knows you, but just in case, you know, new people. Thanks, Amanda. Hi, everyone. I'm Meg. Um, I'm, you know, a former academic, a professional, a writer, and I guess a more newly minted creative, but a lot of you know me as the content producer for Closehorse.world. Um, I work with a lot of the amazing contributors that come through to uh, put you know, super cool different pieces and articles on the blog. And I work with Amanda and Carrie and Haley, and it's great. This week, we did something we have not done before at Closehorse.world, but hopefully is going to be a regular thing now, is we all wrote personal essays about this month's theme, capitalism, and specifically our own relationships with creativity and capitalism. And Carrie, Carrie was like the only person who knew what everybody's essays were, which was kind of cool and fun. <laughs> like to read them all at once then, I was like, wow, how did they all turn out so differently? Um, but she, before I'd read yours or anybody else's, she said, you know, I think you and Meg are a good pairing to discuss your topics. And then, of course, after I read yours, Meg, I was like, whoa, this is this is the wine and cheese of capitalism essays. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect pairing. I love wine and cheese myself, so couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's just perfect. So we're going to talk today about our essays, which are, you know, like I said, about our own personal experiences with our creativity under this capitalist system. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. No, I read your essay too, Amanda. And I have to say, like, your personal narrative was super compelling, obviously, and we've gotten snippets of it here and there on the pod before. But, you know, to sort of read it in one cohesive statement in one sitting was really powerful. And, you know, I admire you uh, for your tenacity and your dedication to your work and all the sacrifices you've had to make, including your personal creativity, you know, to get where you are today. So... I guess if I were going to summarize our two essays and jump in if I am like missing this, but mm -hmm. I guess to kind of get at the heart of why Carrie paired us together. Basically, my essay is about how growing up lower class, creativity is not really an option. And for myself to sort of exist and care for my family, I always had to work and put creativity aside. And for you, you grew up in a very different environment. You grew up in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. You were in an environment where you could have pursued a career that was creative, but it was like so cutthroat and competitive. Whereas where I grew up, like creativity wasn't just even an option, you know? So nobody was competing to be better at it. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, I, you know, I grew up, you know, I was, I was pretty comfortable. I grew up like middle class in New York. Um, and yeah, a lot of, there were a lot of creative opportunities for anyone at any age, but the competition was incredibly fierce and really discouraging at times. And, you know, maybe I'm more sensitive, but it just, you know, kind of became like browbeating at a certain point. And I think one of the common threads between our experiences is, you know, when we grew up and, you know, in our formative years, we sort of lacked the support that we would have needed in order to really commit to a more creative um, career or, you know, sort of creative endeavor. You know, you just didn't have those options. And for me, I might have had the options, but I didn't 
feel, you know, empowered or encouraged or, you know, supported in my choices or, you know, when you're auditioning for every single thing, you know, in New York, you have to audition for preschool, elementary school, middle school, anything like your parents help you when you're, you know, young, but you, it's like college applications, but for your entire life. So it, you know, the rejection becomes really normal and eventually you just kind of get a little bit jaded and cynical about it. And just, you know, sometimes you just like give up or you try something else because it's so, you know, when I was writing this piece, I kept thinking back to a chorus line, you know, the musical where you (laughs) have all these different people competing for this one spot in this production and they're all really talented and they all come from different places and different stories and different traumas, but they're just like, God, I hope I get this. Like that's, that's the common thing. Like they just really want it, but only one person gets it. And the one thing about being in New York is, you know, there's, there's no uh, participation trophies, no one pats you on the back for trying. It's just like you didn't mm-hmm. get it. Like you can try again if you want. Like nobody cares because there's there's so much there's more creative talent available than there are, you know, positions. As a person who cannot handle the slightest hint of competition in the air, like when I feel as if something is a remotely competitive environment, I I just I'm like, no, I quit and I go do something else, which I'm sure is a major character flaw to many people. (laughs) But I cannot imagine existing in that environment, something that is as competitive as the one you grew up in. Would you say that you are a competitive person? You know, it's so funny. I don't really, I mean, maybe I don't see myself as a competitive person, but my scale for judging myself might be a little bit different. I think the way in which I've responded to sort of growing up in that kind of competitive space is to really pursue different niche environments, you know, like instead Mm -hmm. of like fighting hard for that one spot, you adapt and you change and you find an opportunity that's maybe not as attractive to other people, but you sort of, you know, mold yourself or, or pursue other things where you feel like you might have the space to grow or to learn. So I think I've, I've really tried to adapt and pursue other avenues and and maybe seek out creativity unintentionally in different ways. I definitely can be competitive, but of course, you know, you feel a little bit more empowered to be competitive when you think you're good at something. So, you know, when you get a lot <laughs> yes. of negative reinforcement, it can be hard to keep battling, you know, unless you're really passionate and like you're determined. You know, it's 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 it depends. You know, I definitely when you're younger, you can pursue things more easily as a hobby in New York, you know, creative talents. But, you know, as you become older, people expect you to turn it into a hustle, to monetize it, to to become a professional. Mm-hmm. And and sort of that, I think, was the point at which I pivoted and and pursued other professions because I didn't I didn't feel, you know, up to snuff in that regard. And, you know, you've also touched on that on the blog and the pod before and like, you know, the hustle culture and, and the traps and the dangers of that and how challenging that can be. So yes and no. <laughs> Do you think that – because it seems like that rejection, that competitive environment did push you in a different direction from your in your life than mm-hmm. maybe you would have originally envisioned. Do you feel as if in that way the competitive environment mm-hmm. did benefit you? I think in a lot of ways it has. And, you know, I've reflected on my life – 
you know, or, you know, not that I'm super old or anything, but, you know, about the different choices I've made and the paths I've taken, you know, I've thought, like, what if I had tried to become a professional dancer? Um, and that might have been an option for me, you know, at a younger age, if I had committed to it, you know, before going to college. And like, that's something I had gotten good feedback on. Um, but, you know, again, I, I made a different choice because I thought it would provide better, more exciting opportunities for myself. Um, and so I, I think, you know, maybe I need to give myself a break for, for making certain choices, which I thought were the best in the moment. Um, and, and dancing is something I enjoy, you know, I enjoy singing. I enjoy a lot of the creative, um, endeavors I pursued as a much younger person, but, um, I did create new opportunities for myself by trying to, you know, be different and do different things, you know, that maybe other people weren't doing as much. Um, and I think, yeah, in, in retrospect, maybe it did benefit me. And maybe that's, you know, part of the maybe smaller upsides of capitalism is it does force you to innovate, you know, because you have to, because if you can't <laughs> succeed at doing the thing that you're currently doing, no matter how hard you try or no matter how good you might be, then you have to do something different, you know, to survive. And, you know, mm -hmm. in that way, I guess, you know, I did find success doing other things. I think that that is really interesting because I grew up in an environment where a creative career, any, any energy expended on creative endeavors is just unacceptable because like you were saying, capitalism sort of forces you into survival mm -hmm. mode, no matter what, unless you're wildly wealthy. And that's, you know, that's not us. <laughs> right. And nope. so where I grew up, the environment I grew up in, art doesn't pay the bills. You know, it's it, mm -hmm. what I would be told time and time again is like, you know, you need to use your gifts to pursue endeavors and a career that is going to allow you to take care of yourself and, you know, your family. Um, I definitely think that, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. There was definitely a period a few years ago where I feel like my mom was angling for me to buy her a house. And Oof. I know, I'm so glad I didn't do that. Um, that's a whole <laughs> other story. But I uh, look back and I see how a lot of the adults in my life looked at me as this future investment in like their their old age, you know, forget about a four hundred one k. Just make <laughs> Amanda go sit in her room and copy the dictionary every night, and we're going to get there, you know. And so, right, there was no support or encouragement towards creative anything, and it wasn't even an you know, it just wasn't even an option. Even though I love to draw and paint and write and just constantly make things, it was like no, actually, put that away. You need to go read the encyclopedia. You need to like, you know, go practice your handwriting. This was a thing my mom was hung up on my handwriting um, because a teacher had told her that it was my greatest flaw. And Wow. <laughs> um, harsh. I know. I know. And it's like weird to think about like a time in your life when handwriting was like a pain point for you. <laughs> I don't miss third grade. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's when I learned cursive too. I think that was like one of the last times they were teaching. Like, yeah, when handwriting still matters. And you got a grade <laughs> in it. Yeah, I know. Now I'm like mm -hmm. starting to write something by hand and I'm like, I'm tired. I need to type this. <laughs> but, right. you know, as I got into high school, you know, and I, I felt that I was a creative person. I could feel that inside of me, you know, anytime I could 
make something, create something, I wanted to do it. You know, I would go see my guidance counselor to get ready to register for classes for the next school year. And I always wanted to take all the different art classes. I mean, my school even offered like, you know, fashion related stuff. And my guidance counselor was always like, no, you know what? You are on a track. You're probably going to have a career in STEM. I mean, that's like, you know, you're really good at math. You love science. And I was like, yeah, I, I do love these things, but I love all these other things too. And my guidance counselor was like, you know, a person from your background, a student like you, needs to really be focusing all of your school time on taking as many free AP classes as possible to save money down the road. Like, you can't take art. You can't take fashion design. Like, you need to be focusing on what's going to get you ahead in college. And I mean, I I look back at that now. At the time, I was just like, why is life always so unfair? But then I listened and took all the AP classes, you know. But when you live in the lower class or the lower middle class, you view creative careers as like these flights of fancy. They're not productive. They're not practical. You're not going to be able to buy your mom a house just because you took some art classes. And I was – I would say that our society rewards creative careers in the same way. Like there's a surcharge on enjoying your work because the the conceit there is that creative careers are fun and mm-hmm. other jobs, I guess, are not, which is messed up anyway. Oh, yeah. But did you, did you see any of that in your environment? Like creative jobs are impractical and other jobs are practical and work isn't about fun. They can't ever coexist. Like growing up in an environment that was so competitive and where creativity was seen as a career, did you see that kind of thinking? You know, it's so funny when you're just talking about the advice you would get from your guidance counselor. I got the exact same advice. I was also sort of pushed towards STEM and I did end up in a STEM career myself. Um, and it was for very similar reasons. It's like, you know, yeah, art is fun and it's it's indulgent, you know, in a way, right? Because it, you enjoy it and, you know, you get to work on yourself. It's very focused on the individual, or at least that's how it was billed to me. Um And this idea that you could be really successful if you go into something that's very focused on like science and math, you know, because there's supposedly like tons of money, you know, floating around um, those sort of disciplines, Mm -hmm. you know, spoiler alert, there's not, or at least for, (laughs) for very niche nuance, like if you're good at computer science or finance, like economics or if you're, a, you know, if you become a plastic surgeon or if you're, you know, working for NASA or the military, like, yeah, there's definitely money in it for you. But I think I even ended up in a more creative scientific career. You know, I became an environmentalist. I studied ecology and biogeography. And part of the reason I chose those things is because I really love to travel. And it actually took me to some pretty exotic places, you know, to do research um, and to meet all sorts of people and experience all sorts of landscapes. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, just because you pursue STEM doesn't mean there's necessarily money involved. (laughs) Um, It sort of depends on who you want to work for and who you're doing the science or math for. So it's so funny that you got that advice too. But um, yeah, I was sort of, um, you know, because I had aptitudes in those arenas as well as, you know, um, in in other more creative fields, but I sort of was nudged in that direction. I don't regret it, but um, I definitely wonder if I had gotten different advice if I would have 
you know, pursued something else. And, you know, I, I would turn the same question to you. You know, it sounds like you got a lot of no in creative art or artistic settings, at least from school or, you know, from your family. But, you know, did any of your friends encourage you or did you find sneaky ways to be creative in your career? You know, I uh, I got to college and it was like there that I was identified as a talented writer. Like actually in high school that had been part of it too. And my family was still just like, writers don't make money. Like you, (laughs) and I mean, to be fair, that is for the most part true. Um, It's definitely something that, you know, was my dream and something that I have continued to work on my entire adult life in one way or another. But there was this early part of my career when I was in the lower level of buying where it was like my career wasn't eating up all of my mental space every day. It wasn't the same. I I, I think a lot about the trajectory of my career and how each year I had less like an energy available for anything that wasn't work. And I wonder if it was just the natural part of my career progressing or was it this shift into all this like bullshit hustle culture? Because I felt like with each job, there was less interest in you being anyone other than doing this job that it was supposed to be like, especially mm-hmm. in the startup like landscape, your job is supposed to be your life because you're on this mission to make the world better. Seriously, even if you're just selling like fast fashion feminist tees, you know? Oh, yeah. And so in the early parts of my career where I had a lot more bandwidth, where I would like leave the office, go home, and my brain felt fresh and good, I spent a lot of time writing short stories and blogging. And I was building up like a pretty decent amount of following doing that. Um, I had this fantasy at the time. This was during the 2008, you know, recession. I had this fantasy that I was going to be laid off because it would seem inevitable in retail at that point that that would happen. And there was so much doom and gloom around our office. Like I felt like it was only a matter of time. So I was like waiting, waiting to get laid off because I wanted to go to Mexico City for six months and write a book and then come back and, you know, jump back into my career or whatever else I wanted to do. My mom was always telling me like they pay you so little and they get so much work out of you, you're going to be the last person that gets laid off. And I was like, no, come on. I'm going to get laid off. It's going to be great. And in fact, I did not get laid off, spoiler, uh, and continued working there. But during that period, I was still really, really creative. And then, like I said, I can't can't figure out what happened, but I hit a point in my career, it may have been the places I was working, where your job was supposed to be your life. And I remember specifically – that began when I was working at Nasty Gal, ironically. That was when I had no intellectual bandwidth left after work to go home and write. And that was that period lasted several years through several jobs. Um, and it's been just since the pandemic that I've been able to get back into it. Wow. And, you know, I, I know you talked about this a lot on the department, but I think that's part of the most insidious you know, thing about that kind of girl boss culture is, is by marketing like a lifestyle or an identity, like you kind of force people to like, invest even more in their work. And then work does become your life because you are fully identified by your work. You know, you're a girl, Mm -hmm. you're a boss, you work for a girl boss, you work, you sell girl boss stuff. Like, (laughs) how horrible. Oh my gosh. I know. When you say it out loud, it's so depressing. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, well, at least it's not like that anymore. And yeah, I definitely had, you know, fantasies because, you know, even though I was, you know, like I, I was fortunate enough to, you know, get employment or in the sense I, I sort of ran away to grad school for that reason. Like the economy was bad. And, you know, I had I had sort of recently graduated like into that recession. I was like, well, it's going to be hard to find a job. And it's just, you know, it's so hard to, you know, to get entry level stuff when you're competing with, you know, overqualified adults for it. So I'm going to run away to grad school, get another degree. And, you know, I worked really hard. I got a scholarship. I, I was able to basically get a free grad school education because I worked teaching for the school at the time. And I did my own original research that got grant funded. And, you know, I was also taking classes like I was earning my degree. Um, so, you know, I was very proud of myself for putting myself through grad school. Um, but yeah, I had this fantasy of just, you know, like, I wasn't super into like all the, you know, the boys club of academia and mm -hmm. all this pressure to publish and do all these things. And, you know, like, of course, the expectations for you as a woman in any sort of science field is, you know, to work 10 times as hard and mm -hmm. you have to be like the smartest person in the room, you know, in order to like earn your spot. And I was just like, this sucks. I would, I kind of fantasized about running away and like, you know, writing a textbook or just, you know, writing my own travel blog as like a field biologist and just like, you know, going camping with friends and just like being outside and, you know, I, I wanted to run away from responsibility, turn off the news. I was, it was very much a fantasy of mine. Um, but yeah, you know, it never happened. I, I finished my master's. I moved back east and started working and, you know, still somehow working, but definitely <laughs> fantasizing about running away. Um, although there's nowhere to run away to right now. I so know. it's been extra tough. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, that's a conversation Dustin and I have every day. Like, oh, we're working so hard. Are we missing out? Like we could go somewhere. And then it's like, there's nowhere to go. Like we may as well. Yeah. And this is like the, the Puritan work ethic that has been instilled in me. My attitude is like, well, we may as well just work and work right now so that we cannot work in the future. <laughs> like, True, right? Like, like take a vacation. Yeah, yeah. Like someday yeah. we're going to take a vacation. So let's just work really hard until then so that we can take the vacation. Um, that's my mm -hmm. attitude. Everybody's always like, I can't believe how hard you work. And I'm like, well, there's nothing else to do right now. You know? So true. I'm an addict, but <laughs> <laughs> aren't we all though? I love working on Clothes Horse, honestly. Like I, I really enjoy it. Truly, it's it's a labor of love. I think everybody feels that way. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It feels it feels good. It doesn't feel like work in the way that like my job felt like work. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's like fun work, which is such a weird thing. But um, I love fun work. I'm all about fun work. You know, because <laughs> you want to feel productive. You want to produce things and accomplish things and, you know, things that you're personally invested in and yeah. resources. Definitely that. But yeah, work, work is boring. <laughs> <laughs> As we, you know, sort of alluded to earlier, you know, there in, in capitalism and creativity, you know, there's competition and, and, you know, everybody's sort of competing for, you know, these coveted spots, like these spotlights in which you can shine and show off your work and get attention and, you know, accolades and, you know, maybe even money for what you're doing. You know, we, we see <laughs> that in social media. We see that, you know, in real life. Um, so going through lots of auditions and like applying for things and trying for things and, 
not getting a lot of them definitely rocked my ability to be confident as a creative. So I kind of like checked out a little bit and sort of, you know, gave up as a very unconfident, awkward teen. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of reinforced that, you know, no matter how good you are, like there's always someone out there who's going to be better. And I feel like that's a very capitalistic notion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really trying to focus more on the positive and just um, meeting myself where I am and accepting myself for who I am as a creative, like qualitatively instead of quantitatively. So, you know, I would turn that question to you, Amanda, like, what do you do to feel confident as a creative for everybody listening who could maybe use a boost? <laughs> I mean, that is such a complicated question. Like, when I look back at my career in buying, which, you know, is a creative career. Like you're mm-hmm. creating product, you're doing a lot of creative problem solving, which I I love doing some critical thinking. Like that's that's one of my favorite things. Uh, I always felt very confident in my ability to like create product, pick out the right product, create a merchandising story that was successful because I was really good at being a buyer, you know? Mm-hmm. I And I felt very confident in the work I was doing, but I didn't feel confident being at work because, I mean, fashion is like a brutal environment. I don't Mm -hmm. know why. I feel like people saw Devil Wears Prada and they thought it was a documentary or like an (laughs) HR video because I can't believe since my very first week working and buying, the cruelty I have seen at work in clothing companies. And so, you know, and in my last job, the classism was so disgusting and loud and cruel all the time that I felt like I had to wear a mask to work practically, like be this completely different person. And so my confidence in, in terms of who I was was shot. But my confidence in my work was high as always, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I feel confident about what I create at Clothes Horse, but it does feel good to create something that resonates with others and is my true self. But I'm my own worst critic. Like every episode as I'm finishing it, I have a moment where I think this is the worst one yet. Everyone's going to hate this. This is going to be boring. People are probably sick of hearing me talk. You know, whatever. Maybe people hear the lawnmower in the background and someone's going to send me a mean DM because that kind of stuff does happen. So when you put yourself out there, like I am with Clothes Horse, uh, it can be hard to feel confident because just when you're like, this was the best one yet, someone sends you a trolley message on Instagram. (laughs) But... Then I see the members of our community post about it, call the hotline, you know, send DMs about how this or that really excited them or made them think or how it's helped them change their lives. And that's what keeps me going and keeps me brave enough to put myself out there and put this work out there, even if I don't always feel 100% confident about it. You know, if I put in my best effort I worked really hard to make sure the information was the best it could be. I worked really hard on the sound quality and sort of making the guests come out of their shell. Then that should be good, you know? Um, have you had people – because, you know, you and I have talked. Like, we have not mm-hmm. gotten a lot of encouragement from our families per se. Have yep. you had people outside of your family whose feedback and encouragement have given you the confidence to continue – 
to create and challenge yourself, put yourself out there? You know, I, I feel fortunate in that I have, I've definitely sort of like, you know, accumulated my own like, you know, chosen family along the way, you know, I've, I've made some good friends in my travels and in living different places. And I'm, I'm sure you have, we've lived in a couple of the same different cities, which is cool. (laughs) Um, So I think it is really about, you know, sort of trying to find people who, you know, are supportive and encouraging, but are also honest with you and, you know, being like forgiving of yourself Um, But also taking those risks and like going, like trying something, even though it's scary and you could be really bad. Um, But yeah, I've definitely, you know, I've, I've made some good friends, you know, both in like academic and corporate environments. Um, And, you know, it's, it kind of helps when you you can connect with, with people you spend a lot of time with, especially in like a professional capacity, because then maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable to share yourself and and not fear judgment or rejection. You know, when you were talking Mm -hmm. earlier about feeling like you couldn't be yourself at work, I've definitely related to that. And, and I think there's this huge disparity between like actually being really good at the job and the tasks that the job requires. And then like, sort of like, company culture and, you know, being a cultural fit. I kind of like hate that a little Mm -hmm. bit because I always feel like I'm not a cookie cutter corporate person. And I, you know, I can do the job and, you know, I don't feel like I'm disruptive in any way, or at least, you know, outward, like, you know, I, I could be, but I'm not. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of, you know, get picked on or get ostracized because I'm not like drinking the Kool-Aid hardcore, you know, and, and I feel like it's, you know, it's such a detriment and it can be such a handicap. And then I feel like it's just this negative feedback loop. Like you feel less able to share yourself and there's, you know, it's, it's just bad, Mm -hmm. but I think it's really key, like finding people that you can work with and feel like you can at least be yourself a little bit with make all the difference, you know, and, um, definitely one of the things I have enjoyed about working in an academic environment is, is sort of like, it is kind of like cobbled together and you meet all sorts of people from all sorts of places. So it's definitely, it attracts misfits Um, and you can make Mm -hmm. some really good friends and, you know, school can actually be a place for creativity, you know, um, and it is very individual focused. You can learn a lot about yourself and a lot about people. And so I think I felt, you know, a little bit more comfortable to be myself in those spaces, but yeah, definitely working in a corporate environment, it can kind of squash creativity in that way because there's this hope that you'll be this very specific kind of person, at least, you know, on the clock. Um, But yeah, definitely um, choosing to do what I'm interested in doing and then sort of meeting those people along the way that also share my interests is key, you know, because when I was growing up, you know, I was always super nerdy and, and into science and bugs and plants and all that stuff. And like, you know, like my parents you know, I, I love them. They're great. But like, I never, they never even pretended to be interested in what I was interested in, which fine, but it definitely was kind of like a little bit of a bummer as a kid, you know, what I would talk about cool, weird stuff I was into and like, they just weren't biting. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, go off and, uh, you know, work on my tomato plants. Like, that's cool. (laughs) So, you know, it's, I think the key is like, really going for what you're interested in and then like the people that you vibe with will probably follow or you'll find them there. Um, so I think that's what's helped me to find people that encourage me. (laughs) I mean, I think that is so interesting to hear you talk about corporate culture, really wanting you to be sort of like a cookie cutter and drink the Kool-Aid because 
that has been very problematic for me. Like when I think about that term cultural fit in the fashion industry, it's really that term is, I mean, that term is always heavily veiled racism, classism, Mm -hmm. ableism, and anti-fat bias. It's all the bad, all the bad things. Um, and so when I hear that term, I immediately just like it's triggering. I know body (laughs) cringe. Yeah. Yeah. But I also would say like I never felt like a cultural fit anywhere I worked, even though I loved the people I worked with. You know, I was really good at my job, but I wasn't gonna like post about work on my Instagram account. Oh God, no. You know what I mean? (laughs) But everybody else was doing that all the time. And I mean, I have friends who work in other very large corporate environments who like their Instagram should be sponsored by their job. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like this unspoken rule, right? It's like, it's not in your contract, but like, if you're not doing it, then like, do you really love working here? I hate that. I hate that too. And at my last job, that was like a big thing that like came up in conversation that like, I didn't really post about work on Instagram. And I was like, well, that's, that's my personal life, you know? Right. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I I feel like there's this expectation for you to just make yourself completely vulnerable to work, even though they don't have to do the same for you. And and if you put (laughs) up any sort of personal boundaries, not necessarily for insidious reasons, you know, reasons that would be damaging to the company, but, you know, it's like seen as suspicious. It's like, okay, like, why doesn't she want to post about work on Instagram? Like, what's going on there? You know, and like, I think a lot of assumptions can follow and those can be really dangerous and unfair, you know, like Mm -hmm. I feel like you can do a job really well and you don't necessarily have to sell your soul to do it. I mean, granted, there are a lot of gray areas there and that would probably warrant a whole other discussion. (laughs) But at the same time, like, you know, it, all these, you know, like passive aggressive, you know, unwritten, unspoken rules out there, I think are, are, are really can be really challenging and and it's not fair you know like if you really do want people to post about work on social media then like write it into the contract you know have them work on the social media like just just be clear about it i th- i think it's kind of unfair um and yeah. then like you know cultural fit can be such an unwieldy weapon you know and like define the culture you know nobody's going to ever write it down but they'll <laughs> they'll use that as a blanket term you know to, to yeah. black oh, yeah. you for sure, for sure. It's see also on brand. That's another one oh. that gets thrown out a lot. And mm-hmm. it also means all the bad things. Right now I'm like not missing working in a corporate environment. That's for sure. Definitely. I mean, I would say like, you know, losing my job in the pandemic, uh, really seeing one of my worst anxieties like be real uh, and worrying so much all the time. Like my anxiety has been so bad for the last year. You know, I feel like I'm like surfing these waves of it that are terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it's the like the lull between waves where I'm able to like create and work and work on clothes horse. I cannot overstate this enough that like clothes horse has helped me survive, stay alive the last year, both creatively and literally, mm-hmm. you know, like actually physically alive. I I think the pandemic and losing my job and having basically, I mean, I know this sounds really melodramatic, but I think you can understand this when you're 
career is such a key part of your identity for better or worse. I'm not saying that right. that's a good thing, but when your career ends, you feel like you don't know who you are mm-hmm. anymore and you feel very, very lost, you know? And with like no job, no options for jobs and nowhere to go, as we mentioned, there's right. nowhere to go. I finally had literally no obstacles in the way of doing what I have been wanting to do for so long. And that's kind of like, I mean, I look at the pandemic, obviously it's a terrible thing, right? So many, so many terrible things have happened in the past year alone to so many people. None of us will ever be the same. I mean, me losing my job is like the most minor thing that could happen to you in the pandemic. And yet I can step back and say like there are good things for me that came out of this, even though it doesn't feel like that to me sometimes because I'm so anxious. Um, And one of those good things is that I have been able to step back and say like, I don't think I can... I can work in a corporate environment like that ever again. <laughs> like I just – I my anxiety is too high for 8, 9, 10 hours a day while I'm in that office. And I don't miss that, you know, even though I'm terrified about what's going to happen to me. At least I'm not there all day freaking out about all of the interpersonal drama going on around me. Hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I don't blame you for not missing it. And I have to say, Amanda, like, I really admire you for, you know, you've realized, like, one of your worst fears has sort of come back to haunt you through the pandemic, you know, and you alluded to this in your essay, you know, this fear of like, losing your job, losing income, losing a sense of yourself. But, you know, you've really sort of had this Phoenix moment with Clothes Horse, I feel like, and, you know, this bad thing happened, but, you know, you're like, well, you know, dancing on the grave of your career with with this new (laughs) endeavor that you've launched. And I think one of the keys to sort of being in that situation, like because, you know, in American culture, like your job becomes so much a part of your identity and that's part of like the capitalist hustle grind. But when you create goals for yourself, whether they're related to your job or you're not, I think you can really gain a lot of that identity back. And I think you've, you've done that really well. And yeah, you know, like, you know, who knows where it's going, but I, I think, you know, it's kind of this thread we all want to follow and, and find it. So, you know, it seems like you removed a lot of your, ob- or a lot of the obstacles were removed for you. For me. Yeah. For it's you. not like I did it. <laughs> right. But I mean, and right. yeah, the future's still scary for you, for myself, for, for pretty much everybody in different ways. But, you know, the anxiety is real, but, you know, do you feel stronger now? Do you feel more hopeful now? Um, you know, being committed to this project, working on this project, you're sort of creating, you know, all these different, you know, avenues that you could go down with this. Like, how do you feel now having gotten close horse to this place? I mean, it's kind of shocking to me that this is where it is right now because it hasn't even been a full year. And mm-hmm. I can't believe that there's a community that exists around Clothes Horse, like this thing that I started recording three feet from my bed back in Philadelphia. You know, (laughs) like it's just like so wild to me. And that's what makes me feel like there is so much potential, so much potential there. You know, I – this week we're going to cross the 100,000 listens like threshold. Like Wow. 
Clothes Horse will have been listened to 100,000 times. And <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I actually had no idea because the uh, source I was using for my data was showing a lot less. And then Apple Podcasts uh, unlocked all this new analytics for uh, podcasters. And I logged in and I was like, holy shit. This <gasps> explains why there's a community around Close Horse, you know? So very, very exciting. And like, for me, it feels like, okay, this is not something I can quit, right? Like, I need Mm-mm. to keep doing it. And I do, like, I can't say this enough, though. Like, I love working on Close Horse. It doesn't feel like work to me at all. I love talking to the people who are in our community. I like, you know, helping people learn, sharing information. Um, I've learned so many new skills in the midst of it. Like now I make videos, like I can edit video, which is not something I knew how to do before. And I guess now I'm a graphic designer and an audio engineer as well. And so I am like, yeah, (laughs) learning for me, like learning is one of life's simplest pleasures and I always want to be learning. And so by working on Clothes Horse, I not only get to be creative, but I also get to learn alongside everyone who listens. And that is like my dream come true. Um, I think where I am right now is like I really, if I want to continue to do close horse by the fall, this needs to have like some sort of sustainable income attached to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of like the deadline for myself because if that doesn't happen, I'm going to f- have to find some kind of job. That job will not be in the fashion industry because no one's going to hire me. <laughs> After close horse. I mean, that's okay. But, you know, yeah. does it mean like it, you know, it might mean like I am, you know, working at Costco or I'm, you know, waiting tables or I am hopefully finding some clients. But I also feel like I could by that time have enough community going on to actually get paid for close horse in a way that like, you know, pays my bills. So, Hopefully that won't happen. You know, like hopefully we're going to get to that good point and not that other point where I'd have to pull back on it because yeah. it is it is a full-time job. It just doesn't happen to pay very much right now, you know, but it could. It could. And I think as the community grows, as the people in our community are in a better space financially because I know so many people are struggling, I think that we can get to a place where Close Horse is is a, you know, something that pays all of us for our time because all of us are working for free right now on the blog. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if, I mean, I know we do it because we love it, but that doesn't mean, you know, this goes back to that thinking we were talking about a few minutes ago that like, because you love it doesn't mean it's not valuable. So true. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, I've heard us in our conversations get trapped in this idea that like, well, we love clothes horse, so it shouldn't pay. You know, it's the things that suck that are supposed to pay you. Like, what kind of mentality? Ugh, what has I'm capitalism so done that. to us? I know, I know, I know. They're they're really pulling the puppet strings here. But I I love that we're you know sort of fl- flipping the narrative on its head, especially you know you starting all this, Amanda. And I also think Close Horse can go places. And I think that the name of the game is sustainability, right? I mean, we're not trying to become you know, some super rich, you know, white tech bro, 
Like that's oh, not going to happen no. with both no. horse. But yeah. but we want this to be sustainable and we want it to grow, you know, in a sustainable way so that more people can enjoy close horse and join the community, join the fold. And, and so, you know, we can bring even more to everyone, you know, if we could focus on it full time. I think it's it's all positive. It's all good. And, you know, I, I, I really do believe in it. I, you know, I just, there's so much excitement and momentum. You know, I think the key is that most, if not everyone who knows that closed source exists, I think is curious to see what's coming next, you know, and that's the key to perpetuity, to growth, to continuity mm-hmm. is, is curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily like a certain emotion or anxiety or excitement or like, you know, false confidence. I think everyone's curious. And if we continue to be curious and continue to invest our time and efforts and energy, I think this is really going to go places. And I think we all want it to, too, which is key. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, we have been creating a lot of ideas for things we want to do in the coming months, like different ways to reach people, ways that we could fund the project, you know, like, Mm-hmm. I mean, we're obsessed with events. There's been talk of tattoos. I don't even know. But uh, <laughs> we we definitely want to get out there and meet more people and bring more people into the fold. Because even the past few weeks, as I've been really thinking a lot about greenwashing, more than I've ever thought about greenwashing before, I've been thinking about how the key to all of this is to sharing our knowledge with more people which means meeting more people, which means we need to think about what are we going to do with Close Horse next and not think of it just as a podcast and a blog, but as a like, God, I don't, I don't know. Like I, an intelligentsia, an like a collective. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Like where we are just spreading information, meeting new people, supporting and lifting up small businesses, you know, because these are all mm-hmm. the important parts of changing the status quo. And we need, we need volume there. We need lots of people. So oh, yeah, that's got to be the mission. And also like, we're pretty fun. So like, if anything, we want to <laughs> meet people to have them come hang with us virtually, and hopefully IRL safely in the future. Like, you know, we, we want to share all the fun, cool stuff we're doing. It's not all doom and gloom. And that's another really attractive aspect of Close Source, I think, is that you know, we care about the earth. We're very conscientious. We care about each other as people, you know, humans matter too, you know. Um, but yeah, we're, we're here to have fun too. Like it's our life. We might as well live it the way we want to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, come have fun with us, please. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Meg, for taking the time to talk to me today. This was so fun. Oh yeah. Thank you for having me, Amanda. Definitely very fun. Looking forward to more convos in the future. Both of the conversations today talked about the significance of community in our lives, how it was giving us an opportunity to reframe how we saw our relationship with work, the future, and our creativity. You might ask us, we ask ourselves, what is the incentive to work on Clothes Horse, a job that consumes a lot of our time but brings us no income? It's kind of a wild idea under capitalism, right? It is the community that we both serve and live within. We are incentivized by the good work we get to create, by the satisfaction of giving amazing people a platform for their talent and experience, by the joy of working with one another because the team is so rad. I can't imagine not talking to them all the time now. (laughs) 
But this incentive is a great transition into, I told you it was going to be a great transition, into exploring the final pillar of capitalism, incentive. Incentive, the thing that motivates or encourages one to do something, is another key component of the sort of like energy. It's the fuel of capitalism. It is the financial motivation for people to take certain actions. It allows businesses to become more creative and inventive as everyone competes to have products or services that are better than their competitors. And to be clear, the incentive here is there's only one and it's amassing profit, making money. Sure, fame might come along with a successful business, um, wider social circle, power, but the profit is the key goal here. In our conversations today, we all admitted in one way or another that we were very wrapped up in working harder and harder. Even if we had moved away from that now, at some point we were in it. That's because the message of capitalism has always been work harder, make more money. By now, after a month of breaking apart capitalism and shining a spotlight on its flaws, we know that work and wealth are barely related. (laughs) But the illusion that work equals wealth and therefore more work equals more wealth is the incentive that keeps us all working and working. It's a comforting notion, right? That all that hard work all the times you cried at work or missed spending time with someone you love or you got like four hours of sleep, that it was all worth it because somehow the financial rewards are on the horizon. And you might be saying, Amanda, I was working so hard to move up the career ladder. But once again, that comes back to bigger financial rewards. Trust me, that's happening in your mind, even if it's not at the forefront of it. I hate the concept of paying your dues. Don't get me started. Definitely want to talk about that during Labor Month because it's the biggest lie of all that sacrificing your life now will somehow pay off down the road. When you own the company or at least, you know, you're an executive, the incentive is clear. Profitable company equals profitable life. The more profit the company makes, the higher your salary and bonuses will be. But for the rest of us, our only incentive is that lie that we're all paying our dues and someday it will pay off. Or perhaps if we don't pay those dues, we will lose our job. We are expected to make ourselves completely vulnerable to work, to sacrifice the best of ourselves to it, to give all of our loyalty, our emotional bandwidth, our best ideas, our Instagram grids, all of it to work. But the catch is, which I'm sure you have come to realize by now and possibly experienced yourself, we don't get any of that in return. There is no loyalty to us because the leaders, the CEOs, their incentive isn't to do right by us, to value our humanity, to remain loyal to us, to give us the best opportunities. No, their incentive is to make more money. And we are all a means to that end. And sometimes we are an obstacle to that end. I don't think we'll ever stop talking about capitalism around here. But I will say that I began the month knowing that I didn't like capitalism without any concrete reason. I just knew 
I just knew it was somehow bad. A gut feeling, I guess. And now, after a month of reading, writing, and talking about it, I see that capitalism is fundamentally flawed. Most definitely doomed. Because the pillars, private property, supply and demand, competition, freedom, and incentive, I don't see humans anywhere on that list. Capitalism views people's work as an asset and their desire to buy a necessary driver of capitalism. But the things that make people truly magical, like creativity, compassion, connection, and community, capitalism doesn't see a value in those. When the world was upended by COVID, we saw in plain sight everything that our current capitalist system doesn't adequately provide. Healthcare, living wages, workplace safety, childcare, access to education, the list goes on. The bottom line is when you're worried about all of these things, it is very hard to be creative. And the world clearly needs our creativity in order to solve those large-scale problems. We need to enable and empower people to be creative to make this world a better place to live. So I hope these essays and conversations help put some perspective on any pressures that you have been feeling as a creative person or as someone who is trying to make a living through your creativity or just dreams of doing so. We want to keep talking about how to make that a reality. It means questioning the pillars of capitalism and how we individually have internalized those values. Maybe instead of individualism, you know, working in isolation for our own benefit, we focus on collaboration, where success of the whole is valued over the success of a few. Maybe instead of competition, the idea that there must be winners and losers, we can focus on collectivism, a system in which our diverse talents support each other. I see a better future for us but it doesn't happen if we don't question the world around us. It doesn't happen if we don't connect with others, if we don't share knowledge and experience. It happens when we bring more people into the community. And that is when it shifts from a group to a movement. I believe that we can get there, but we have to do it together. Thanks to Haley, Carrie, and Meg for their amazing conversation on this episode. I feel so lucky to get to work with so many talented, passionate, and very cool people. Extra thanks to Haley for learning how to record. And mega super thanks to Carrie for putting all this together, including the concept, and for a lot of additional writing support for this episode. I'm so grateful. And Carrie will be back in a few weeks when she interviews me, which is a totally new format and process for me. Um, we'll see how that goes. I'm excited. I'm afraid. But I think it's going to be really cool. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. It's all about community. Don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And every Friday, I'm doing an Instagram live at 8 p.m. Eastern time. This week, Haley of this episode, that Haley, will be joining me and we'll be talking about capitalism, what's happening at the blog, and we'll be taking your questions. 
Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, go join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And if you need a new podcast, please go check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. Right now, we are in a series about online dating. It's been really fun. There's been a lot of laughing until you cry. And uh, it's also made me see a lot of patterns in my life. So it might be good for you too. (laughs) Thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support and consistent external hard drive rescue maneuvers. Bye. (laughs) 